0: You know, we've been telling you about, like, you know, we're having some size issues just in the church and trying to figure out how to navigate. So some people are sitting over in the overflow room and all. And then once the children leave, you know, we have like 50 extra seats. And so some people have said, well, why don't we just start with them out? Um, But if you've been here, uh, you know a little bit about us. We love being together. We, li- we believe there's a great value in, in our children of, and of all ages, us worshiping together. And so uh, we love them being able to partake of just um, singing worship songs with us. And then, of course, last Sunday of the month is Family Sunday where we spend the entire Sunday in this room together. Uh, so we ask that you would just continue to give prayer, pray for the elders and us to have wisdom as we try to p- figure out what is the best way forward. Um, but we, we certainly love the children that God has blessed us with. Okay, Hebrews chapter 8. Many of you know we've been making our way through the book and we are continuing on. Title today is, Why is every Sunday school answer Jesus? Many of you have probably heard of that saying. And the whole point of that saying is to emphasize the supreme importance of Jesus Christ. What we're saying is that we believe as Christians that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the only one who can save us from our sins uh, and give us eternal life. We do not believe there is salvation in anything else. There is no way we can be saved by our works, by um, by any amount of our power. By any worldly means, Jesus is our hope, Jesus is our savior, Jesus is our king, Jesus is our prophet. And especially in Hebrews, we've seen Jesus is our priest, Jesus is our perfect sacrifice, Jesus is everything we need. So Jesus is the answer to every Sunday school question. We'll explain that as we kind of go through. Now, we're in the book of Hebrews, and the church has not been growing in its faith. Remember, chapter 5 and 6, that's where we saw that. And so because they've not been maturing in their faith, and persecution has now come, thus exposing their weakened uh, faith, they're now wrestling with, what do we do? So some of them have thought, maybe, maybe we should abandon Christianity altogether. We should leave Jesus and go back to Judaism. And so in our text today, the author is going to show that that would be absolutely ridiculous and foolish to go backwards because how can you go back to Judaism when all of Judaism points to Jesus? And so uh, that is what we're going to be looking at today is how does the Old Testament move and bring us to Jesus Christ? And, And so if you're a believer and you're here today, my hope is that this message strengthens you, encourages you, equips you, that you would also, if you're a parent, that you would be um, encouraged and reminded of the absolute importance to train your children and teach them about Jesus. That is not our job as the church. We come alongside you and hopefully strengthen what you are already doing, but as we're going to see The greatest need that you, that I, that everyone has is Jesus Christ. And so we want to train up our children from a young age to know Jesus is the one who can fully uh, bring joy and comfort and eternal life to them. Um, If you're an unbeliever here and, and... And maybe you're not sure why you're here today. You finally gave in to the person who's asked you. You're here to just, you know, figure out why it is that you don't want to believe in Christianity. So maybe you've come to kind of take your notes and develop more ammo why this is not the religion for you. Well, as we just walk through just God's Word and in chapter 8 of Hebrews, I pray that you would see why we place so much importance on Jesus Christ. Not that we place it, but the Bible places so much importance on Jesus And my hope and prayer is that you too would then trust in Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do is pray, um, and well, actually we'll read first, and then we'll pray, and we'll dig in. So if you don't mind going ahead and standing with me, we stand as we read God's Word. And so we're going to read from verse 6 all the way to the end of the chapter. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the... Then the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let me pray. Father, we We come to you right now, and we just come in humility, and we come in joy, with our hearts full of praise that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, who has died on a cross, suffered for our sins, absorbing your wrath, that we who believe in you could be forgiven. And Lord, I pray that as we just look at the gospel today, we'd be reminded of the great hope that we have. We'd be reminded that there is no other name under heaven in which we can be saved. We'd be reminded of the need to teach our children, to encourage other disciples, to share the gospel with those outside the church, that they would know and believe in Jesus and also share in the hope and joy we have of the new covenant that he brings. Lord, be with us today as we study. Give us wisdom, give us understanding. Amen. You all may be seated. So we're going to start out today by asking the question, what is a covenant? The word covenant appears seven times in chapter 8. It appears 15 times in chapters 8, 9, and 10. It appeared once in chapter 7. So if we're going to understand the text today, if we're going to understand today and next week and the next couple of weeks as we're in these chapters, we need to know what the word covenant means. And I'm sure many of you have heard that. Many of you may have also heard uh, that the word contract is a present-day word that's similar to covenant. And I would say that, yes, there are similarities, but they cannot be interchanged. And, And let me just give just really just kind of one reason. A contract involves a relationship for the sake of an obligation. You get that? Relationship for the sake of an obligation. So like when you go and buy a car and you take out a loan, you enter into a relationship with the bank, but for the purpose of them giving you money and you giving them money, when that obligation is over, so is the relationship. You guys don't send each other Christmas cards. You're not checking in on birthdays. Like it's over. You don't ever want to hear from them again. And they frankly don't want to hear from you again either, unless if you're going to pay them more money. So it's all about the obligation. It's about the performance that needs to be done. That's what a contract is. But a covenant, it's about relationship. That's why when two people come together in marriage, they don't enter into contract with one another. Obligations, they enter into covenant. They're having a relationship with one another. In fact, uh, a brief definition, which I have in your in your worship guide, says a covenant is a chosen relationship between two, par- two parties ordered according to specific promises. But the promises serve the relationship. And so when the Bible uses the word covenant, it, we need to think relationship. And specifically, it refers to how God relates with his people. And so, covenants as we come into God's word, are extremely important. In fact, covenants are the very skeleton. They're the structure of the entire Bible. In fact, I would say if you do not understand covenants, then you will not understand how we go from Genesis in a garden to Revelation in a city. You won't understand how we move there. And, and, and to prove that, I'm going to venture to say, many of you feel lost in the Old Testament. You open up the Old Testament, you're in the book of Hosea, you're in the book of Joel, you're in the book of Obadiah, book of Habakkuk, book of Jeremiah, Isaiah, and you're just like, what's going on here? Where am I at? Because like your body, if you don't have a skeleton, what happens? You're a pile of mush, right? Skeleton gives structure, holds everything together. Every story, every book has a structure. If you don't know the structure, you won't know how the story progresses, how it unfolds. We tracking? Covenants are the means in which we understand the unfolding nature of God's Word. It's how He shows He relates to people, moves to Jesus Christ, where eventually we will all spend eternity with Him. And so what I want to do is quickly just run through some of the Old Old Testament covenants. Just kind of, we're going to do this super quick. We're not saying much about them. Far more could be said about every single one of these. Um, And the first one's about Adam. And we don't see the word covenant in Genesis 1 and 2, but that doesn't mean it's not there. We see the very principles of covenant at work. God created Adam in his image to rule creation, to multiply, to reflect the very character of God in everything that he does. But we see that that Adam sinned. He turned his back on the covenant. He forsook the promises that, that that were to be held in the covenant. And because of his sin, we see that all of humanity becomes sinful. And then what we see because of that is as, as we progress through Genesis 3, 4, 5, and 6, is that humanity is so sinful, God said, I'm going to flood the earth and destroy all of mankind, except for one family, Noah. And so he puts Noah and his family in an ark, and at the end of that time of the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah. Where particularly he's suspending his judgment at that time. He says, I will never again flood the earth. In my wrath. And he puts a rainbow in the sky as the symbol of that covenant. And so we have all of, Crete, all of humanity is destroyed. We started with a new Noah, which is like a second Adam in a sense. It's like we have this new birth of humanity. But how is it that God is going to begin forming a people once again for himself? He makes a covenant with a man named Abraham where he promises Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, I will give you land and blessings, and through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And so we have the beginnings of a relationship of God started with a man who's going to result in a great amount of people being in relationship with God. And then as we progress through the book of Genesis, we see Abraham has a son named, remember? Isaac, who has a son named Jacob, who has a son. You remember all 12? No, just kidding. We're not going to do 12. Those get hard. But he has 12 sons. These 12 sons form the nation of Israel. And so at the end of Genesis, we see that Abram's family, now this nation that's coming forth from him, goes into Egypt where eventually they become enslaved for 400 years. But then God, through a man named Moses, brings about the greatest Old Testament salvation work that there is. He brings God's people, he brings his people through through all these miracles and these wonders, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, to a mountain to himself, to Mount Sinai, where God now gives a covenant to this people. So this people, now he's going to say, this people whom he has saved, he gives a covenant which is called the Mosaic Covenant, or the Old Covenant. That's how it's, that's how it's um, generalized and usually referred to. So if you refer to the Old Covenant, you're referring to this covenant that God gave to his people at Mount Sinai. And this is where God gives the Ten Commandments. It's where he gives his civil law. It's where he gives the sacrificial law, where we have priests and tabernacles and the sacrifices how it is that God's people who have been saved by him are to live and to worship him in all spheres of their life that's what the mosaic law does how is this people the nation of Israel to be distinct from all other peoples and then as we progress through the bible we come to a man named David who's the king of Israel and God makes a, a covenant with him and he says One day, I will bring a son from you, so from the line of David, and he will be a king. He will rule forever in perfect righteousness. And so what we have is we have in the very beginning of the Bible, we have Adam living in God's place, a garden, experiencing God's rule and blessing. Because of sin, he's cast out. God begins a new work through a man named Abram where he begins to create a people for himself. Now you have the nation of Israel. You have a king. And they're experiencing God's blessing as they live in the land that he's given them. And yet, we're always realizing we need something greater as we make our way through. Because there's there's a problem in in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, And we see that when we come right here to Hebrews 8. And we ask, the second question is, what is the problem with the Old Covenant? Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, admittedly, at this moment, we need to ask a question. What covenant are we talking about? I mean, there's, there's several that took place in the Old Testament. We just ran through them really quick. Well, he's referring to the old covenant, to the Mosaic covenant, to the one that God made with his people at Mount Sinai. How do we know that? At least two reasons, and we give many, many more, but two. Number one, verse nine, he refers to this covenant when he talks about God bringing Israel out of Egypt. That's talking about the Mosaic covenant. That's the event that preceded it where God would then give the covenant to his people, but also in chapter 7, where we've been a couple of weeks ago, in verse 18, referring to this covenant, because he's talking about the priests and the sacrificial system, he says it was weak and useless, and what he means by that, if you remember, that it did not have the power to, bring a, to truly save us from our sins, So we had a covenant, but it wasn't able to bring about real heart change in the people. And and the author has been showing us this as we've actually gone through the book of Hebrews. If you remember back in Hebrews chapter 3, the author pointed out the sinfulness of Israel, that when they came out of Egypt, God gave them his law. They enter into this covenant with God. Then they're supposed to go into the promised land. Remember that? They're about to go into the promised land. Moses is ready to lead them, and they send out the 12 12 spies, and they come back, and do you remember what happens? They don't go into the promised land. They turn their back on God. And so in Hebrews chapter 3, he points out it's because of their sinfulness that they did not trust in God. Therefore, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And in fact, the text that we're in today, so we're reading... Um, in Hebrews 8, and he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. This is the largest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. Did you know that? It's the largest Old Testament quote, and it's all about this new covenant. Now, do you know where God's people are when Jeremiah writes this? They're in exile. God's people have been defeated by, by Assyria. They've been defeated by Babylon. And now they're in exile. Their temple has been destroyed. Their land has been desolated and their hopes have been crushed. And, and if we say, well, why? Why are they suffering? Why are they in exile? Well, Jeremiah, a multiple of times throughout his letter, as well as the other prophets, tells us exactly why they're in exile. So I just want to read some of these and, and I just want you to figure out why is God's people in exile? And it's going to become very clear. Jeremiah 3.17 At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all the nations shall gather to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Jeremiah 7.24 But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backwards and not forward. Jeremiah 11:8 Yet they did not obey or incline their ear but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do but they did not. Jeremiah 13:10 This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart, and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. What's the problem? This is where we do that interaction thing. What's the problem? Stubborn, evil, sinful hearts. Like it's crystal clear, especially when you just kind of stack the verses on top of each other of what Jeremiah is saying is the problem. Israel had sinful hearts, and the old covenant did not have the power to transform sinful hearts. It was weak. It was based upon a law written on stone tablets. And as we saw last week, if you remember, the entire old covenant... The Mosaic Covenant, given at Mount Sinai, is based on copies and shadows. If you need to go back, you can go back and listen to last week's sermon. But what it is, is the tabernacle, the priests, the sacrifices, the laws, they're all copies. They're shadows of a much greater reality in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true priest. Jesus is the true sacrifice. Jesus doesn't go into the shadowy, earthly tabernacle, but he's in heaven in the true presence of God. So this entire Mosaic covenant is based upon externals, but the problem with humanity is not external, but it's internal. Now, we constantly wrestle with that problem today. We always think the problem is outside of us. We think that if we just change our circumstances, then everything will work out. Everything will be okay. But it won't. And we know that. Because what's our biggest problem? Your biggest problem, my biggest problem, is me. It's you. It's your sinful heart that you have. That's, that's the biggest problem that you and I have. It's not out there. It's not someone else. It's in here. That's the message of God's Word. Listen, you don't, you don't need a better spouse. You don't need better money, a better job. You don't need to be better looking. You don't need to be better athletically. You don't need to have better health have better respect, have better hobbies, have a better car, have better sex, have better whatever, that's the foolish reasoning of the world. That if you just had this, this, or this, everything's going to work out okay. But if you buy into that, you've all seen like the little hamster in the wheel just running around in a circle. He never goes anywhere. And you all know that's what happens. I changed everything. Why does life still hard? I changed everything. Why am I still struggling with these same problems? Because you're just like the hamster in the wheel. You're just going around and around and around. You can change all your externals, but you're never going anywhere. You're just staying the same. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. That's our problem. That's your problem. That's my problem. That's everyone's problem. Listen, your anger your impatience, your lust, your greed, that doesn't come from out here. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from your heart. Now other people, other things, might be the occasion that that gets exposed, but they're not who puts it there. Your anger, your greed, your lust, your rage, all of that comes from within your own heart. And what we need is something not written on stone tablets, but we need a new heart. We need need God's law written on us. We need an internal transformation to happen so that we can truly live and honor and glorify God. That's how we come to the new covenant that's his whole argument as he's moving here. He's like, this was the old covenant, but it had a fault. It had problems. But now comes Jesus and Jesus brings a new covenant. And if you look at verse 6, it's just better. That's how you can summarize verse 6. It's a better covenant based upon better with a better ministry based upon better promises. It's better. We could have titled this message better. I like, you know, to give Raymond more words to figure out how to put on the the worship guide. So why is this new covenant better? That's Jeremiah chapter three. And, And get this, Jeremiah, Old Testament prophet, knows we need this better covenant in the Old Testament. So the hope in the Old Testament is not, man, if we can just do this Mosaic law better, if we could just be more obedient If we could just do this, do this, do this, then we'd be okay. No, they know we need something better. We need a better covenant. We need a better priest who brings better sacrifice. We need something that can truly cleanse our hearts and transform us. And so in comes this new covenant. And what we see, and I just want to give three things. Number one, it offers a better relationship. Remember, he's writing to exiles. He's writing to give them hope because they've turned their back on God. They've disobeyed their covenant. They've rejected God. They've gone after false gods. And so now when they're in exile, their land is desolated. Their temple is destroyed. Their hopes are crushed. He says, oh, there is hope. God is not done. I hope you know that today. Look at verse 10. Or... Um, Verse 8, we read that God will put his law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And then he declares, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will write my law onto their minds, and on their hearts. I will give them a new will. I will give them a new affection. Listen how Ezekiel, same thing, same topic, new covenant. This is what Ezekiel, exact same circumstance. He's also saying, we're in the old covenant. We need a better covenant. So Ezekiel says this, verse 26 of Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see the promise? God's not going to write his law on stone tablets anymore. And place them in a wooden ark covered in gold. He writes them in your heart. You become the ark. The church is the temple. Like don't miss the symbolism here. We had an ark. But now in the, in the tablets were written there. Now they're written in you. And the church forms the temple where God dwells. He's not giving us anything written on externals anymore. But with the new covenant it all becomes Internal. When you believe in Jesus Christ, God gives you a new affections and new will that you now desire to live like God. Now, that doesn't mean like as soon as we believe in Jesus, all of a sudden we're out like door-to-door evangelism, we're reading 19 hours a day, and we automatically just love each other perfectly. That'd be cool, right? We're not like switches that just go off and on. We're more like dimmer switches, and we start dim. Just realize that you start dim. And as we come into God's word, because now we want to, because we begin a new heart and a spirit that drives us, and as we seek to obey, that switch gets turned up more and more and more and more and more, and we become more and more like Jesus. That's exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As we look at the very glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we become more like Jesus. By degree, by degree, by degree, by degree. We're dimmer switches, and we're all dim. Take it how you want, and as we study, we become more like Christ. And there are times we go, I don't really want to study. And that's why we have community. So we speak into each other. We encourage each other. We lock arms with one another. And when all of a sudden we get overwhelmed by sin, like the church here, someone comes along and says, let me come alongside you, remind you of the truth of God's word. And why we never go back to Judaism. Why we don't go back to externals when we have Jesus and the new Covenant." Don't miss this. Everyone who has this new heart is a child of God. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are saved. You are a member of the new covenant, and you have an eternal membership in God's house as his child. God's law is written on your heart and your mind. Now, don't miss this. This is totally different than in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, what did it take to be a part of Israel, God's people? What'd it take? Physical birth, and if you're a male, circumcision. You're in. Kinda. I mean, as you, as you make your way through the Bible, there always seems to be an Israel within an Israel. There's like a remnant. You, you remember that word in, throughout the Old Testament? There's a remnant of believers. And then when we get to Romans 9, 6, Paul actually will say, Not all of Israel is Israel. Just because you're born of Abraham, just because you can track your lineage, just because you were circumcised, doesn't mean you actually believe in God. You see, in the Old Testament, to be a part of Israel was not only a a thing of spirituality, but it was political. You're born into it. It's a physical kingdom state. But now in the New Covenant, what we read, hold on. No one becomes a member by physical birth. We become a member by spiritual birth, by receiving a new heart, a new mind. This is why every member of the church, if they have trusted in Jesus Christ, truly is saved. There's no church within a church. That doesn't mean everyone here is saved, but it means that everyone who truly believes in Jesus Christ is saved. This is, quick side note, and we're not going to get into this much. Um, This is why we believe in believer's baptism. Don't miss this. With this new covenant that comes, that now every single member of the new covenant has a new heart and a new mind, which God's law is written upon, this is why we will say, no, baptism's not like circumcision. Circumcision looks forward to the cross, baptism looks backwards to the cross, and baptism now affirms, based upon who Jesus is and my faith in him, I am now a member of the household of faith. It's different. Now, Presbyterians and those who do um, uh, infant baptism, they treat it more like circumcision, circumcision. Not that just because you were circumcised, you're automatically saved. Just because you're baptized, you're automatically saved. But it's their hope and anticipation that God will save them. But based upon our understanding of the new covenant, we say no. It is very, very different. Because with this new covenant, you read down in verse 13, the old is obsolete. It vanishes. Something new has come. And the sign is very different now. It is baptism for all who are members of the household of Christ. So that's real quick side note. um, I think it's worthy to throw in there because that is the difference between credo and pedo-baptism. So number one, the new covenant gives us a better relationship. Number two, it gives us a better knowledge. Look at verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now, this doesn't mean we don't need teachers. doesn't mean we don't need pastors. But what it does mean is that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you right now. And when you open up God's Word, that Spirit works in you that you would understand God's Word, that you would know God's Word that you would apply God's word and become more and more like Christ. Now, I totally understand. There are times we read and we kind of go, I'm not sure what I just read and I'm not sure what I learned. Did you ever, have you ever felt like that? Yeah, sometimes. But God is still at that moment using his word, growing us in our knowledge, equipping us and strengthening us to live a life of holiness. The old covenant was external. Again, it was written on tablets of stone. Now, there was a purpose in all that. To use the word fault doesn't mean God made a mistake. Romans says, it was only by the law that I knew that I was a sinner. It was when the law told me what sin is, then I was like, oh man, that's what I do. I am a sinner. In Galatians, Paul says, the law was like a guardian watching over us. The law revealed our need for God's grace. But now in Jesus, we not only know what sin is, but we're given the very power through this new covenant and the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit that we are saved and we know who God is. And through His Word, we're able to grow in our understanding of Him more and more every day. Galatians 3 says this, But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, under the law, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. Now it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter your bloodline. In Christ, we all become one people of God. The same Spirit dwells in every single one of us that when we come into His Word, we would know who God is and become more like Him. Number three, it offers better forgiveness. Look at verse 12. Notice the word for. This means that verse 12 is the basis for the better relationship and the better knowledge that we've already mentioned. And there we read, it says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Remember, what's wrong, in the old, what's wrong in the Old Testament? The Old Covenant wasn't strong enough to change the sinful, stubborn hearts of the people. So we have a faulty covenant, and we have sinful people. The sacrifices that were made every year could not truly cleanse them from their sins, but then comes jesus as the fulfillment of the old covenant he comes and offers one perfect sacrifice so that all sins would be forgiven for those who believe in him chapter 10 verse 14 for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified jesus death on the cross fully satisfies the wrath of god do you know that fully satisfied, or as Adiel said, is fully sufficient to cleanse us from our sins. He paid the debt for our sins. Never again will there be another sacrifice. Jesus will never again go to the cross. There will never be a need for another sacrificial system. Why? Because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice who fulfills the entire sacrificial system. And when it says that God will not remember our sins anymore, it does not mean that He forgets. Like, don't have a weak view of God. Like, He's omniscient, right? He knows everything. How can the one who knows everything not know something? So obviously it means more something different than just simply not knowing, but that he purposely chooses never to bring up your sin again and hold it against you. Is that not incredible? Now just think about how different that is from us. You might be here and you're going to maybe maybe fit both these descriptions or, or you're one or the other, but we have a really hard time forgiving people, don't we? We like to remember things. And we like to remind other people that we remember things. And we like to have lists. And we check them. And we add to them. And we we show them to people when they forget how they've wronged us. And we let them know, man, you've done this, you've done this, you've done, you're married, you've experienced this, right? You're a parent, you've done this. You're a kid, if you're alive and breathing, This is you. This is me. And we love to hold on to things. We love to remind people, hold on, you know, you've done this to me before. I'm justified in my anger because this isn't the only time you did this. There's actually seven other times. I have the dates if you'd like me to go over them with you. It's what we do. Now maybe... You're also on the other side of that, and you just have this resume of, I've messed up, 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 I've messed up. And the good news is, God says, I'll never bring that up again. Isn't that incredible? You live under a weight of sin. You live under a weight that just is upon you that says, guilty, 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 not worthy, nobody should love you, you're screwed up, and really, you don't belong. Have you ever felt that way? There are so many people on a daily basis that that's their mindset. And that might be you today where you just have this weight upon you. And if anyone wants to say, is anyone perfect? You say, no, I'm not. I have a list of reasons why not. And you have a list a mile long of how you've screwed up either because of things done to you or because you've just made that many decisions. And yet, God's message is the same for every single one of us. If we believe in Christ, you're forgiven, and He chooses to never, ever bring those up again. Isn't that incredible? That's how we are to treat one another. When we ask forgiveness, when we come to one another, that's how we love one another. Husbands, wives, that's how we love one another. We don't keep throwing something back at one another. We don't do it with our kids. We don't do it with people in the church. We don't do it with people we work with. We are to have the very character of God because we have his law written on our hearts and our minds that we become like him So what we see God doing is what we see that we are now called to do because we are members of this new covenant in Jesus. But going back to Christ, know that if you've believed in him, you are forgiven. You will never, ever, ever hear the words condemned again. Isn't that good news? When you when that day, when you come to the heavenly gates, Jesus isn't going to pull you aside and say, ah, we need to go over a few things. I have a list. There is no list. The only thing that's on that list, is that Jesus died for you. And your sins have been paid for in full. Sufficient, according to audio. It's a good word. We should use it more. We should. And this will never be reversed. Do you remember the, the point of chapter 7? You're like, no. Jesus is the greater priest, Right? Remember the problem with the priesthood? They kept dying and they were imperfect. Chapter 7 is meant to say, if only we had a perfect priest whose one perfect sacrifice would actually last forever. This new covenant will be in place as long as Jesus Christ is our high priest, which is forever. Which is why when he goes into verse 13 and says, and speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is get growing old and ready to vanish away. We will never go back. We will never go back to externals. In fact, there will never be a new covenant. Jesus, or a newer covenant. Jesus is the new covenant. And under that covenant, when we believe in him, we're absolutely forgiven This is why it is absolutely foolish for the church to go backwards to Judaism. This is why it's absolutely foolish for you and I to look anywhere else for salvation. The only one who offers a relationship is Jesus. The only one who can give us the knowledge of God is Jesus. The only one who can bring about forgiveness of sins is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And we know this. Every single week we remind ourselves of this. Here's the trick. Not trick. Here's the question. How? How do we know this every single week, that the new covenant is sufficient? Because the meal we take every single week. This is why we do the new covenant meal. This is what Jesus says. Matthew 26, verse 26 to 28. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it and said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the, for the forgiveness of sins. Every week we gather and we take this meal, every week, as a means of reminding ourselves Jesus died on the cross. We are forgiven now, today, that we believe in him and we look forward to the day he returns and we will live with him forever. Those are the three things we see in the cross or at at communion. We look back at the death of Christ. We affirm the reality of it today. You are forgiven and he's coming back. Jesus is the answer to every Sunday school question because he is the only one who saves us. He's the only one who gives us a new heart. He's the only one who gives us the saving knowledge of God. He's the better prophet, the better king, the better priest, the better sacrifices who ministers in a better temple. There's no one else to turn to. If you turn to anything else, if you look for anything else, if you have your hope in anything else, you're looking towards externals. Looking to these things, if we just change our circumstance, I'll become better. Life will get better. I'll earn something. I'll achieve something. But you're nothing more than the hamster in the wheel spinning over and over and over. Only in Christ are we saved. So I pray, if you're not a believer, you just know Jesus is the answer, and you would trust in him and believe in him today. If you are a believer, I pray that you are more encouraged in your faith and that you will be all the more diligent to equip your children, to equip other disciples, to encourage others and be encouraged in your faith. Let's pray.